I'll just give you a brief anecdote. Um, I currently work in a mental hospital where I'm doing this podcast from today. And I used to work in a general hospital in a psychiatry department in a general hospital. And every day in the general hospital, I would see family walking through the front door carrying a beautiful bouquet of flowers or carrying chocolates or carrying gifts for their family member. I, I have never once in my life walked into this hospital and seen people are coming in with flowers, with chocolates, with gifts. Um, and I think that's because people just don't see a mental illness as, as an illness. They don't see it as a uh, as something which needs empathy and needs sympathy and, and where people need to come and, and when you have love and care and affection and that can help in the recovery and healing process. Welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham. A warning before we get going. Today's episode of the podcast will be talking about mental health and suicide and difficult issues related to these subjects. It's probably not a podcast best for when you're driving with the kids in your car. And if you are struggling with any mental health issue, this may not be right for you. So with that warning ahead of time, we're going to talk today, mental health and men's mental health. And here's a statistic that I think brings it home. In 2020 in Canada, 1,745 Canadians died in traffic accidents, a trauma for each family, these accidents that make the news and that bring tears whenever a family loses a loved one, or in some tragic circumstances, several members of a family die in one of these horrible vehicle accidents. But each year, often quietly, 2,600 men die by suicide in Canada. It's one of the leading causes of death for men in the 18 to 35 age bracket. An average of 50 men per week die by suicide. Why is that? This is a topic that I think is an important one to talk about, men's mental health. And for a number of reasons, we're going to focus today specifically on men. And to talk about this important issue, we're joined by someone who is pursuing this as one of their major research areas as a leading thought leader on men's mental health. Professor Rob Whitley is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University and a research scientist at the Douglas Research Center. He received his PhD from King's College in London and a master's in public health from London as well. Although he's a He's from the Isle of Jersey, one of the Channel Islands, and he has just released a book, Men's Issues and Men's Mental Health, tackling these important topics. He also writes a monthly blog on the topic of men's mental health for psychology today and has published over 100 academic papers in the field of social psychiatry, and he's currently a senior research scholar awarded by the Fonds de Recherche du Québec. I also have to say full disclosure, Rob is a friend, and in May, we collaborated on an op-ed talking about the important importance of a return to work and the purpose that work can provide for someone in recovery from a mental health challenge. Welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast, Rob Whitley. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's great to see you again, albeit this time via a screen. 
It is great to see you. And I, I would say we were able to see uh, one another in person at the first gathering in person on Parliament Hill in two years, the Sam Sharp Mental Health Breakfast, which you attended for the first time. What did you think? It was a, a very stimulating event, and it was amazing to see so many thought leaders and advocates and activists in the room who care about veterans' mental health. And uh, it's very inspiring, actually. I came back to Montreal motivated to, to do some, some more work on this topic and, and try and think of some solutions. Well, I'm glad you could come. And it was the first time we'd held that event live in two years. It's the ninth year. And when Romeo Dallaire and I started the event, we did it with the goal of bringing together thought leaders, a people that work as advocates, as researchers, as volunteers in the mental health space, specifically for, for veteran and first responder mental health, but the wider piece in terms of dealing with trauma. And why I'm starting with this is Sam Sharp himself, a member of parliament, a, a lawyer, and really a prominent citizen in Ontario, fought at Vimy Ridge, received the Distinguished Service Order for his gallant leadership in World War I. He was re-elected while fighting overseas. But he's not well known because he died over 100 years ago by suicide. And we are still coming to terms with talking about suicide ideation, death by suicide, and men's mental health. There's a number of reasons for that, but what do you think is one of the primary reasons for our, our acute crisis in men's mental health? I, if we zero in on suicide, for example, I, there has been a belief, a common belief, that if you talk about suicide, it actually leads to more suicides. And this is, this is not, in fact, the case. No public health issue has ever been solved by silence. Um, the more you talk about an issue, the more you give messages of hope, the more you talk about, for example, suicide pre prevention, the more you talk about the treatments that are available and how successful they can be, the more you talk about the services, both official services that can help and kind of unofficial peer support, bottom-up grassroots community groups that can help, um, the, the more the issue of suicide will be discussed and the more solutions will be put forward. Um, but there has been a belief, like I said, that if you talk about these issues, you somehow make it worse. And I believe this belief has also applied to the wider issue of men's mental health in some ways. It's, it's been a stigmatized area that there seems to be a, a belief that talking about it could lead to people getting triggered, for example, or, or lead to uh, people uh, with, with issues not knowing what to do or how to respond. But we need education, we need awareness, we need more discussion of these issues. And, and I do think in the last five years or so, there have been many positive um, progress, much positive progress about in, in this regard. And we can obviously talk about some of the, these today. Yeah, no, and that's exactly why we're talking about it. Because as you said, nothing is solved by silence. And this is a crisis. I, I compared it to, um, you know, motor vehicle deaths in Canada, there's vastly more just men um, dying by suicide in the right circumstances, preventable deaths, if we can reduce the stigma and get people treatment. Let's just look at some of the stats that you cover in your book, Men's Issues and Men's Mental Health. Surveys show that, that as part of often a complex mental health picture, Canadian men are three times more likely to experience addiction 
and substance abuse issues like opioid use. In fact, 81% of the deaths in BC, which has been the epicenter of the opioid crisis in 2022, were men. The, the other startling statistic I, uh, I saw in your book is that statistics show that women are often three times more likely to seek mental health professional supports than men. So that's, that's part of that stigma within male culture, I guess, that makes them more reticent to seek the help they need, therefore leading to more harm, more addiction, and in some cases, more deaths. Yeah, you've raised a variety of issues there, which I think we should touch upon. Um, why is it that men are reticent to seek help for mental health issues? And there are a variety of answers to that question. Um, there's no single dominant answer, but there's many multifactorial strands which intersect. Um, one area is the world of work that I think we should talk about. So we know that work is very helpful for people's mental health, but being unemployed is a risk factor for suicide, for depression, for substance use. However, workplaces, they are evolving and many workplaces are changing, but there's still many old fashioned attitudes in the workplace about mental health and especially mental health amongst men. Um, if you think about male dominated professions, manufacturing, law enforcement, the military, um, uh, transport, security, uh, if you are somebody who has mental health issues and you go to your boss or you, you tell your colleagues, I'm having some mental health issues. I might need to go and see a doctor once a week. I might need to go and see a psychiatrist. That in many of these, these domains, that could lead to a note on your personnel file. There are still many employers who equate mental illness with laziness, with malingering, with hypochondria. Um, there would be worries that you'll be passed over for promotion, for example. Uh, and there will be worries due to stigma and stereotypes that you're a security risk, that you're somebody who shouldn't be near hazardous materials, that you shouldn't be near weapons, that you, you, sh you should be put on best duty if you're a frontline police officer, for example. So you, you've opened up so many, many questions here, but I think we really need to zero in on the, the role of the workplace, because that's where many men spend most of their, many of their waking hours. Uh, and we do need to help employees work towards becoming more understanding about mental health issues and, and about the risk factors and what can be done to help them. Because well, we all know as, as employers and as people who work in institutions, if you say to your boss, in 90% 90, 90 of cases, I have a bad knee, uh, I've broken my leg, I need to go to physio a couple of times once a week, but it's, it should all be good in six months, that people will come around and bring you flowers, they'll send you cards, that they'll, they'll say, sure, whatever we can do to help. But if you go with a mental health issue, it's usually not quite the same response. There's suspicion, there's concern, there's, there's ignorance. And I think that's something we really mm -hmm. need to talk about. No, 100%. And in fact, what you described, I've talked about too, in the context of first responders and veterans. If we could just get to a point where we could easily talk about a physical injury or a mental injury interchangeably without saying, as you said, taking a few weeks off for, for physio or for rehab um, for your prosthetic or for a new uh, plate in your knee or something like that is, is almost bucket up. Yeah, soldier on. Mm -hmm. Having that same amount of time for a sit down with a psychiatrist or a psychologist leads to people not being sure how to respond. 
Michael Landsberg, the sports journalist and, and friend, he's come to our event in Ottawa a few times. He started a program called Sick Not Weak, hmm. specifically because he found in the in the sports environment, hockey, especially football, these also sort of ultra male environments, um, a mental health injury would be would be seen as weakness, not not a normal injury or not being sick. So I love the sick, not weak aspect of this. Do we overcome this just through more conversation like Bell, let's talk, let's destigmatize, or do we have to build in workplace uh, accommodations and, and regulate this so that we ensure that that workplaces allow that time to to heal and to to seek treatment because if you don't it can often spiral out of control mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, i think we need a multi-pronged approach to be honest i think we need workplaces to to reform and to become more understanding i think we do need these public education campaigns i think we also need to target high schools and community colleges and other um uh, educational institutions, because that's where the, the leaders and the citizens of tomorrow are currently spending their time to, to really try and sensitize people to the realities of, of mental health and mental illness. So, you know, some facts that people find surprising that I tell them is that um, most most people, even with severe mental illnesses like bipolar and schizophrenia, make a very good recovery. Many people think it's a lifelong illness. It's a, we use this language of chronic illness, but it's not actually the case. If you receive the right services and the right supports, a mental illness can be healed in the same manner as a, a broken leg can be healed. It, it will need uh, certain interventions. You need to take time off. Uh, you might need to restrict your abilities on some tasks in, in the short term. But in the long term, we know that people can make an excellent recovery. Uh, and that knowledge is not necessarily out there. Um, and we, we do also, like you said, need to change the, the, the overall discourse. Um, I'll just give you a brief anecdote. Um, I currently work in a mental hospital where I'm doing this podcast from today. And I used to work in a general hospital in a psychiatry department in a general hospital. And every day in the general hospital, I would see family walking through the front door carrying a beautiful bouquet of flowers or carrying chocolates or carrying gifts for their family member. I, I have never once in my life walked into this hospital and seen people are coming in with flowers, with chocolates, with gifts. Um, and I think that's because people just don't see a mental illness as, as an illness. They don't see it as a uh, as something which needs empathy and needs sympathy and, and where people need to come. And, and when you have love and care and affection, and that can help in the recovery and healing process. Wow. You've never seen. Um, that must be stark for someone that steps in and mm-hmm the physical and the mental health environments where the family is coming because they love the person, but even they're not treating it as they would if they were at the other hospital for a physical injury. Has there, you're talking about getting into the high schools. Is there something we have to do in these healthcare mm-hmm. institutions to, to change the culture, you know, almost say, where are the flowers? Where is the, the same level of empathy? Um, do even our, our primary health facilities need to tackle this? I mean, I, I think they do. And, and when I was making that anecdote, I, I certainly wasn't trying to blame the families. No, no, no. Uh, if you come to this hospital where, where I work at, there's some beautiful grounds and the buildings and the people are, are very nice and empathic. But 
there's something different about mental hospitals. You, you come in the main entrance, there's security on one side, there's receptionists behind bulletproof glass, but there isn't like a nice cafe on, on the right hand side. And there aren't volunteers that, are, you know, retired volunteers who are happy to help and point you, this is where radiography is, and this is where um, the child, the, the, the child pediatrics is. So, so it's a, there's a different ambience on, on walking into a, a kind of mental hospital and not every mental health treatment center is the same, but I've been in enough to, to know that there's a, uh, when you come in many mental institutions, you see big signs, violence will not be tolerated. Um, uh, lots of signs about kind of giving out a negative message. Whereas when you walk into general hospitals, you'll see signs like with a rainbow that says everybody welcome and please yeah, feel free no, to visit the may cafe. Maybe that's even a, a holdover from originally these mental health facilities were called asylums. And, you know, I always thought asylum in the context of refugees is protection from, uh, from harm. You know, this is, this is built into the entire concept. So even though we're away from those stigma inducing approaches, uh, I've talked locally that when I grew up, the, it, what was called the Whit Whitby Psychiatric Hospital, now Ontario mm -hmm. Shores, one mm -hmm. of the leading facilities in, in Canada and certainly in the lower or the GTA. When I grew up in the, in the area, the kids referred to it as the Whitby Nuthouse. Mm -hmm. And so even though we've, we've matured and come out of this horrific, almost Dickensian approach to, to deal with mental health, I guess some of the lingering differences are still there in the institutions themselves. Um, any ideas on how we tackle that and on the on the young person piece, because I do think great programs like Bell Let's Talk and, and hashtags and, you know, Mental Health Day and Week and things like this. It's too easy to tweet about it. But is there enough where we're actually going into the schools and confronting the subject directly? Do you know if this is happening in your experience and particularly with a focus on on young men? Well, I've been working with the Mental Health Commission of Canada for many years, organizing what are known as contact-based uh, interventions or contact-based sessions. And these, the evidence, scientific evidence shows these are the best ways to reduce stigma and raise awareness. Uh, a contact-based intervention means a, a, a small group of individuals, a little panel of individuals going into an institution and, and including people who have the illness. Um, uh, and then maybe including one or two kind of experts who can add a few statistics and, and, and a few, um, a bit of context. Uh, and then giving like a one hour, two hour presentation, sometimes followed by a lunch together, um, also including a family member. So I've been on some great panels where it's been, for example, myself, a young person in their 20s who is, has schizophrenia or has major depression, um, a, 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 a mother or father of someone who has schizophrenia or major depression, uh, and maybe a, a local um, notable figure like like yourself, a local MP or local um, uh, someone who's well known and respected in the local community. Uh, and the evidence shows this is a really powerful way of kind of raising awareness, reducing stigma. Um, we have had a lot of success in delivering these interventions at universities, at, at community colleges, at, at higher education institutions, and we've actually done a lot of um, interventions with, at journalism schools to try and sensitize the next generation of journalists. Um, but we've had a lot of issues, and actually when I say we, I, I probably should say I, 
um, I, I have tried to get access to kind of high schools and to take these kind of panels and organize these events. Uh, and typically we've been um, stonewalled, which I do not think is due to the um, due to any ill will from the teachers or from the staff. I, from, from what I've heard, there's concerns about, uh, which is, I guess, is due to stigma about safety and about whether the young people are ready to hear this and whether it would be kind of triggering and whether, whether this is something that they're emotionally and mature enough to process. Um, and, and I think if, if you do panels which are sensitive, they include young people, uh, young men, young women, that, that that can have a really positive effect. But there's, like I said, there's a little bit of opposition at yeah. the high school level. Yeah. Well, and, you know, talk about an institution reluctant to often change. I, I often talk about the military like that, uh, the veterans community like that, uh, even though I have a dear affection for both, having served myself. The, the school environment, you know, because things are are the same way. There's unions, there's there's just, this is the way we've done it. I really think there has to be a, a, a major approach there. Have you ever heard of the group jack.org? Mm -hmm. uh, they are youth yeah. focused. Um, I know that they, they have a program to get into schools um, and it's the namesake and, and the legacy of a, of a young man who died by suicide, I believe at mm -hmm. Queen's University. So turning trauma into advocacy, um, these smaller groups reminds me of what you've written on in mental health uh, before, comparing it to the Burkean sort of little platoons where we, we actually don't wait for one big government bureaucracy to do this, but we engage with nonprofits, with charities, with volunteers, and fan them out into to schools, into institutions. Do you really see mental health being an area where that could be highly valued? Yeah, it's a great point, Aaron. So we, if you look at various different literature, research literatures, they all converge to indicate that the, the more socially integrated an individual is, the better their mental health. So for example, we know that people who uh, uh, attend a place of worship regularly and are members of a religious community tend to have better mental health, lower suicide rates, lower addictions rates than, than people who do not. Um, we know that people, uh, we have these new interventions called peer support interventions, where you basically have people who have been through the process, veterans, for example, helping other veterans who, who are struggling with issues of mental health and integration. Uh, we know that they can be very helpful. Um, we know that people who are involved in civic societies, bodies, volunteering, um, that, that their mental health is typically better than those who are isolated and, 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 um, and less well integrated. So um, as, you, as you said, the Birkin idea of little platoons, you know, that Birkin theory really matches the evidence that we know from psychiatry, that, that community groups, nonprofits, faith-based organizations, that, that they can play a, a really good role in, in that kind of mid to long-term process of recovery. There's certainly a, a place for psychiatric services, official mental health in terms of acute psychiatry, stabilizing, getting somebody on the right medication. But in terms, of, in terms of that journey from a, a very low place where someone is sometimes unemployed, they're lonely, that, that no, not, nobody understands them, getting them from there to a place where maybe they have a job, where they have a, a partner, where they're, they're contributing to their community, those, those little platoons are, are imperative for that successful journey. 
the little platoons can do more than the brigade to win the, <laughs> win the war. Uh, it's funny you say that because my experience uh, with almost a decade in politics, everything you've named tend to be the core elements of volunteers and, and people that I've seen tackling mental health faith-based organizations. Um, we've had some strong social conservatives in, in my conservative caucus over the years that have done some amazing work on mental health, on suicide prevention. A lot of faith organizations will, uh, will do that to tackle this. Uh, peer support groups, Wounded Warriors Canada, True Patriot Love, the Veterans Transition Network. Um, Veterans Transition Network, I think they're greatest accomplishment in their 20 years of operation have not had a suicide by one of their participants in their peer-based program. And then civic organizations like Rotary Clubs, Lions Clubs, they are doing work on reducing stigma. Um, my own group in Curtis, Ontario has. But what you're saying is they're also, their members have a higher degree of, of mental wellness because of that belonging. Um, we live in an age now, though, where fewer people are joining the Rotary Club. There's a great social psychology book called uh, uh, Bowling Alone, talking mm -hmm. about the decline of bowling leagues. I'm sure you know it's, it's behind you on the shelf. Um, one of your stats in your book that I think highlights this perfectly is 63% of men between 18 and 34 describe serious feelings of loneliness and isolation. Mm -hmm. um, how can we tackle this in a time where people are clicking likes, but not going out and joining a Rotary Club or a Legion? How do we, how do we bring back that social belonging and interaction? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a really good question. And I, I, um, in, a, in the chapter where I give that, that figure I also discuss related to the bowling alone thesis of Robert Putnam that it applies equally to Canada that rates for example of attendance at a place of worship have diminished uh, rates of uh, membership of trade unions and participation in kind of trade unions have diminished um, rates of attendance at sports clubs and sports volunteering uh, from older adults have diminished so we're really living in a society where there's a, a negative trend in that regard and Many of us social scientists and people in mental health would like to reverse that and would like to see some uh, some change. Um, social media has obviously been implicated implicated as a key factor that people have been um, become obsessed with their computers and tablets and uh, their um, cell phones, um, and it, it is a struggle. There there are um, great grassroots groups that are attracting a lot of people. For example, you mentioned the various veterans groups. Um, and I think well, there are other groups for young people. And if you look at like, let's just zero in on church attendance for the um, uh, sake of argument, uh, we know that the bigger domination is the Anglicans and the United are kind of losing membership, but there's a big increase in the more like evangelical Pentecostal, uh, which are typically a bit more grassroots, uh, uh, a bit more, uh, I don't know how to say it, maybe trendy, that they're less uh, traditional than the kind of Anglican uh, United kind of services. And, uh, and I think we have to like respond with the times. And some of the organizations are not really kind of responding with the times. They're still doing things the way they've always done things, maybe not making things as appealing to, to young people as they could be, or 
um, appealing to, uh, there's more single people, for example, in the world now. People are getting married much later. Many people are not getting married. Are these organizations appealing to like single people, single men, single women? Um, and, and I think every organization needs to do some kind of like audit of its activities and what it provides to ensure that it's engaging to and, and, and applicable to the new new reality that we live in. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, <laughs> I'm just thinking about what my uh, online Twitter trolls will say about this. Aaron O'Toole is mandating church attendance <laughs> or belonging to a rotary club <laughs> or bowling leagues. Uh, I, I think you're right. We, we have this double um, pressure point of declining senses or sense of belonging because people are joining things less, whether it's organized religion or or a service club at the same time this social media environment is is leading to more toxicity and 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 negative mental health interactions be because of the toxic environment so they're not going out they're they're clicking on something and they're seeing just division and anger and misinformation have you with men particularly seen that social media has played part of this, you know, loneliness trend and this isolation. So because the internet was supposed to connect us like never before, and <laughs> Facebook has billions of members, and you have all this at your fingertips. But we've never had young men feeling more isolated and alone. Is this a vicious cycle where social media is making things much worse? Um, we do know there have been several studies which have analysed social media usage and mental health outcomes. Um, we do know that there's social media is kind of harmless. It's a bit like alcohol in a way if you use it in moderation and if you just uh, dip in now and again. Um, but we do know that if you, there have been several studies that show if you use social media more than about two hours a day, more or less every day of the week, which many young people do, that, that has been associated with depression and depressive symptoms and the onset of depression. Uh, and there have been several studies which basically show a, a dose response relationship mm -hmm. uh, between social media use and mental health outcomes. Um, in terms of getting kind of people away from social media and out into the world, zero in on men, um, I have done the studies where I've listened to men and asked them about their social lives and what they do and don't do. Um, and there is a, a, a bit of a kind of fear in men now, which we didn't used to see, uh, again, due to cultural trends, that they would be, they're a bit concerned about volunteering or about getting involved in say a, a place of worship or in a local sports club or in a local youth group, because uh, some of the discourse, which, which we needed in some respects about kind of men and, and men as predators and men as pedophiles and men as potential threats to the social order, We've, we've had that discourse quite prominent in the last kind of 10 years. And this has had a bit of a deterrent effect on, on men and younger men in particular, uh, getting involved in, in, in community groups uh, and leading them to, be, to, to, be, to, to use Putnam's words actually to hunker down is what Robert Putnam, the sociologist said. Mm -hmm. um, so, so some of these like background cultural trends have affected the kind of behavior of men. Um, uh, there's a uh, an American psychologist wrote a book called Men on Strike. Uh, <laughs> and it wasn't about men on at the picket line at their jobs. She basically said her argument was that men 
who used to be kind of pillars of the community and used to be volunteering, helping out with the cadet formation at the sports club at the local church, uh, are, are a bit concerned about getting involved because they're they're worried about how they will be perceived or they're worried they do something wrong. There might be a complaint uh, that, that, that they're people might misinterpret their motivations. Uh, and, and this is a, that's a, an epiphenomenon of some of the cultural changes we've seen in the last 10 years regarding kind of gender discourse. Yeah, so the more we talk about um, toxic masculinity and some of these, these, these um, issues that are based on real problems and social issues, but the more they get focused on, the more you're actually driving men away from uh, traditional roles where they volunteered or played a leadership role in some of these organizations that help with social cohesion. So, you know, I'm getting uh, more down by our conversation as we go, Rob, but let's, let's then talk about um, some of the ways we can overcome this. And so we've seen that peer support and, and this belonging uh, really leads to benefit. So are there, are there some programs? Are there some things governments could do provincially and federally? Grant type programs, uh, incentives to to actually encourage this, almost like a public policy nudge, to 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 help them out. Yeah, so I think it's important to state at this stage that when people think of psychiatry, mental health, they think of medication and they think of maybe you know one on one therapy. But there are many different modalities of healing, um, and, and 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 men tend to prefer what we call action-based modalities of healing or solution-based modalities of healing. So I'll just we've already talked about some of them. Peer support groups um, we do know can have a very effective um, impact upon people with mental health issues, helping people navigate the system, talking about how to process their emotions, um, giving people moral and social support. Um, there's other interventions that many people don't know about, often called eco-therapies or bushcraft or wilderness outward bound interventions, and actually builds on a lot of knowledge accrued from Aboriginal mental health, where young, where men and young men, they'll go out for a few days at the weekend, maybe camping, fishing, hunting, learning bushcraft skills, picking mushrooms, um, not the ones that make you a psychedelic, but the ones that you can eat on a barbecue. Um, and learning these kind of outdoor skills, which, which many young people, because they've been raised with tablets and cell phones, don't have. Um, and we know that they can be very effective for young men with mental health issues. Um, the, the men's sheds that, you, that many listeners might be aware of, there's an intervention called men's sheds. Uh, men's sheds are um, basically youth clubs for older men, where older men can go and they can engage in woodwork, metalwork gardening, horticulture, cookery, um, and men go there and they reciprocate, they help each other. A, a man who has skill in one area will help a, a man who doesn't have skill in another and vice versa. Uh, and the evaluations show that they're actually very effective in helping older men with mental health issues. Um, with that prelude stated, to answer your question, what I think government can do, and I wrote an article about this with, with um, Conservative MP Todd Doherty, is that many of these organizations providing these interventions are grassroots organizations surviving on a shoestring budget, very uh, rooted in the local community, but lacking the money and the resources that are allocated to like the huge hospitals and official clinics, uh, is that provincial and, and federal government could think about giving kind of five-year block grants 
for these organizations so that they can properly provide services with a good time horizon um, and employ staff and offer them proper uh, employment, good, good employment conditions in the medium term um, so that there can be some stability and that then they can then grow and thrive. And I really think that's something that kind of the provinces and, and the federal government should think about more deeply. Yeah. And um, not that I'm putting out another pitch for the platform I ran on in the last election, but we we had record investments in mental health and there was going to be a portion of that for a grant type program in many ways to f- to fund and equip those little platoons to do their work. Um, and nobody knows the needs of a local community be it uh, indigenous, be it rural, be it youth at risk in a in an inner city, better than people that are already there on the voluntary front front lines. But let me double back on this because bushcraft, men's sheds, these are types of things that some people might say you're reinforcing the male patriarchy and and toxic masculinity as as a as a means to deal with mental health. Um, is there going to be resistance out there for that? Um, I love how you talked about the traditional teachings from Indigenous leaders and that often that hunting trip with a grandfather or an elder was a way they they taught and counseled uh, a troublesome young man. Um, it, are we going to get backlash on the, the, the fact that some of the programs that's, that clinically help men tend to reinforce masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been working in this field for, for many decades. And when I first started writing about men's mental health, um, there was a, a little bit of backlash from a very small um, subsection of, of the community. But as time has progressed, I've definitely noticed a much greater openness and, and willingness to discuss this issue and to support interventions for men's mental health. and. And I think the backlash now is, is almost negligible um, and doesn't come from any serious scholars or serious sources. Um, I should say that when I write articles about men's mental health or do presentations, um, some of the biggest supporters are, uh, are women. Um, I, I'm regularly in touch with, with um, widows who've lost their husband to suicide, with mothers who've lost their sons to suicide, um, with sisters. There is an awareness amongst almost the vast majority of of Canadians that men's mental health is everybody's mental health. If you have unhealthy men, you have unhealthy families. Uh, That men have sisters, mothers, wives, daughters, and and for for those individuals to flourish and thrive, they need the man to be healthy. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing now a a much greater understanding, and I'm not seeing that kind of backlash. Like I said, maybe a few uh, disgruntled students here and there, but but not many serious kind of sources. No, well that that's good to hear because um, I often say we have to promote as many treatment options as possible, particularly once there's clinical support for them. So if if bushcraft, as you and I have talked about, uh, outward bound, which was a program that I know years ago really helped veterans, um, the men shed some of these some of these almost back to the earth type Mm -hmm. treatment programs, if they can have a demonstrated impact on, on mental health, we should be, we should be encouraging them. Um, Let's talk then about the, the stigma, because I think um, we've talked about this epidemic we have 
with men's mental health. We've talked about some of the treatment options being a way for, for men to not be on strike, not be hunkering down, to, to get out there, be social, deal with the isolation. How can we as a society at, at all the age levels in all environments, including the workforce, really tackle the stigma issue beyond just the campaigns we see, which I think have had a very positive impact, but are there workplace policies? Are there um, you know, things that could be done to reduce stigma, um, to make sure that we're, we're tackling this tsunami of, of depression and isolation in men? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we, we've talked, we've had a bit of negative news in this podcast, but a bit of positive news is that the, the tide is definitely turning regarding stigma in Canada. So there's been several studies which have looked at various um, different parts of society. I, I did my own study looking at the media, for example, and how the media uh, talk about mental illness. And we looked from 2005 to 2018, 19, more or less, a huge time period. And we saw a steady increase in articles which talk about kind of recovery, rehabilitation, treatment, and a decrease in articles which were more stigmatizing. Uh, we did still see in the media that, that articles about men with mental illness tend to be more stigmatizing than articles about women with mental illness. So in the media we saw, which reflects a bit wider society, that if you're a man with a mental illness, there's a bit of a stigma and stereotype that you are kind of a lone wolf, that you're a threat to the social order, that you're, you're prone to violence. Um, we see that in articles about veterans um, in the US media, for example, we've seen articles calling veterans um, ticking time bombs or, or walking guns. We've, we've seen like metaphors like that, which well, luckily we haven't seen here in Canada. Um, but there is still a kind of stigma and stereotype about men with mental health issues, that they are dangerous, that they are violent, that they're a kind of threat to the the work order or the social order um, and there, there does need to be much more education in the workplace and in in, in the schools and uh, like I said really talking about the, the true facts that the, most people with a mental disorder make, make a positive recovery uh, and even those where the disorder persists they still make progress and I sometimes say it's a bit like a, a bad knee you might have an accident and you, you shatter your knee and it might not go back to 100% how it was but you can still walk, you can still bike, you can still, you might not be able to hike 20 miles or run a marathon like you used to do, but you could run a half marathon. And it's the same with mental health issues, with, with the right services and supports, people with depression, with bipolar disorder, with schizophrenia, um, that they can um, that they can really make a contribution. I have on my bookshelf behind me a whole load of autobiographies by people with very severe mental illnesses who are leading very successful careers. I'll take one that example is a woman called Ellen Sachs, who was di diagnosed with schizophrenia at 18, uh, has been in and out of mental hospital, and she's now a professor of law at the University of Southern California. And she, she's written a very poignant um, autobiography about her life. And there's, there's many studies and many autobiographies, that, but she says how her employee was understanding, her husband was supportive, uh, her friends were, were, were supportive. And with, with those supports, people can make a very good recovery. And we really need to educate people that it's, um, I don't like it when people say mental illness is a chronic illness. That's not an evidence-based statement. Um, it's not necessarily chronic, it's not lifelong. You don't have to take medication all your life. There might be some cases where that's that's true, but it's certainly not completely predictive. And 
Mm-hmm. We need to move away from that. Yeah. So the so what you're saying is we're getting good now at reducing stigma about even talking about mental health, but we have to go the next step, which is education, I guess, because people will now say uh, so and so is off um, and is struggling with depression or is receiving treatment for depression, but they still have that impression that they will never recover in the same way that a physical injury would be recovered. So we have to mm-hmm. uh, educate about some of the, the conditions, how, how they can be fully productive. Um, I guess this is, this is, you know, all of government, all of nonprofit education environment, we have to really tackle and, and turn stigma into education about mental health now. Yeah, and I think a key thing to say is that every individual in our society, or the vast majority, are aware of the stereotypes and stigmas about mental illness and, and men and mental illness, women with mental illness. So a lot of men in my studies tell me, well, I'm not going to tell my even my nearest and dearest or, or my boss or my colleagues or friends that I have mental health issues because I don't want them to think that I'm having issues in my private life, in, in my head. And it's not necessarily because of toxic masculinity or these these other factors. It's because there there's a fear of repercussions. There's a fear of consequences that that they feel people will defriend them. That people will um, that their their boss and colleagues might be suspicious about their behaviour and their, their ability to to work well. Um, that even uh, we've had people in studies tell tell me that that they wouldn't disclose their mental health issues to their wife because uh, it's also a an ethos of self-sacrifice that they feel is burdening someone else with an issue and and this with the cost of living and so many other issues that men feel they'll focus on being the primary breadwinner bringing in the money paying the mortgage uh, and there's concerns that if 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 word got out they had mental health issues that might affect their ability to do that and then that could create a cascade of events which could lead to being laid off not being promoted maybe getting divorced mm-hmm. so there's all these external factors which influence the decisions that men make and uh, we often talk about like the internal stigma of men or it's a, it's a discourse that's out there that men just need to talk more or men need to open up more uh, which which there's a truth in that but if, if you divorce that from the social context then it, it's a meaningless kind of admonition meaningless phrase to say men should talk more because talk because men are aware of some of the repercussions and if we don't change the repercussions then men are not going to talk more Mm-hmm. No, I think um, I think that's key. And you talked about the cascading events. I used to call it the the mental health spiral. That if if with veterans, when I was minister, if if something goes untreated, it can then lead to an addiction issue. It can then lead to workplace uh, incident or losing employment. Uh, it can lose to family breakdown, lead to family breakdown. So then that cascade, that vicious cycle begins, which makes the, the person, the man, in this case, being more isolated, um, add to this the financial pressures of the current environment. Um, that leads me to something I wanted to talk about at, uh, at some point, because off the, off the start, I used those, those concerning statistics that men account for 75% of the suicides in Canada up to 2,600 per year with the stresses in the environment we're in, we know there will be 
people struggling as part of the solution. Um, what are some of the things that we can do if we worry that someone has suicide ideation? What are the, the signs or signals that we might want to look for? And how can we prevent this from happening, even prevent one, um, because we are a little platoon ready to be deployed to, to help someone as an expert, what are the warning signs we should be looking for? And then what do we do to, to address it? Because we may be worried to even bring it up. Um, what do you recommend, Rob? Yeah, it's a good question. And it brings us kind of full circle where, where I said right at the beginning, that no public health issue, no medical issue is solved by silence. And, and suicide is a, a health issue, it's a medical issue, it's, it's a social issue all in one. And the, some of the latest recommendations from organizations is certainly not to shy away about talking about suicide. But if you feel somebody is suicidal, um, to say like, have you been having any dark thoughts? You know, have you been considering suicide? Uh, and then if the answer is in the affirmative to then decide, well, does this mean we should, how serious is this? Should we go to the emergency room, which is a, a good place to take someone who's suicidal? You know, should we phone up a family doctor? Um, should we go and see a psychiatrist? Should I talk to the teachers if it's a young person? Um, we do know that certain people are particularly vulnerable to suicide. Um, and one, one common factor is uh, going through a, a transition, uh, a serious intense transition. So people who go from being employed to unemployed uh, are typically at high risk of suicide. Uh, people who go from being married to separated and divorced are at a higher risk. Um, a very high risk group of people who are discharged from a mental hospital, so people who have been in a mental hospital, uh, even just for a day or two, and then they're discharged to the community. Um, and um, again, this is where like joined up thinking and the middle platoons of society can really play a positive role. role. There are no, to my knowledge, specific kind of mental health services for people who have just got divorced, people who have gone, been laid off from their job, um, people who are uh, who've just recently discharged from a mental hospital. And these are the gaps uh, for when people say falling through the cracks, these are the big cracks, which no, there's no bridging services. There's not necessarily many helpful um, interventions. Uh, and I think this is really where kind of individuals, families, nonprofits, churches, community groups can really do something useful. Uh, we have a chaplain here at our hospital uh, and I know the chaplaincy service here and other hospitals, for example, are, are trying what they know when someone's being discharged, you know, where is this person going to live? What are they going to do in their spare time? How are they going to support themselves? Uh, and maybe trying to set somebody up with, with a kind of church, with a community group, um, with a nonprofit to try and ensure that they, they don't fall through the cracks. Um, and I think we as citizens, as, as volunteers, as, as, as um, congregants, uh, as as people involved in in, in in societal groups, you know, when we, we we should talk about this in our groups and say, what could we do to help people in these negative transitions? Is there anything we can do? Any services we can we can create? Any drop-in services? Any like weekly weekly meetings? Peer support groups? Because um, we don't we do know all those. Like I said, those nonprofit grassroots groups can be really helpful. No, that. Yeah. That was very helpful because we all want to be mindful of, of folks in our friends and family that, that may be in one of those serious transition points, an inflection point in life, particularly where they're vulnerable 
um, that's where we have to step in and and be be aware of that. I, I used to call it when when a veteran was getting out of the military, they fell between the cracks. We had to fill mm. the gap between Department of National Defense and Veterans Affairs Canada. It also goes to this purpose element of belonging that you talked about earlier for someone hanging up their uniform, which might've been the only thing they've ever worn as an adult. They have an injury, maybe marital issues, and they're transitioning out of the only thing they know. I guess we have to make sure that that tradition that transition is, is managed and that they have someone with them and that they're not feeling isolated because that is a very vulnerable point. Um, what about warning signs of despondency or when I was a peer counselor in high school, we learned about this people giving away things and, and sort of telltale signs um, that they may be struggling. Are those, are those still things that we should watch for as well is acts like that of giving away prized possessions and, and not going to things and, and withdrawing? Are these all still watch out signals? Um, I think it, it might be useful to make a distinction between kind of conventional mental illnesses, which are in the clinical manuals and put the word you're using, which I like, which is like struggles and troubles and, and issues, um, because we don't need to look at an individual through a kind of clinical framework. Um, many people, for example, who kill themselves do have a diagnosis of depression, but I think about half of people don't have an official mental health diagnosis. Um, but they have struggled with issues like loneliness, of alienation, of, of maybe rejection, betrayal in their friend networks, etc. Uh, so, so one piece of advice that the um, professional bodies and, and the advocacy groups often give out is, is, yeah, a kind of a sudden change of behavior is a warning sign away from what, uh, a 180 degree kind of change of behavior away from what the individual used to be like. If the individual was very gregarious, and suddenly becomes introverted, that's a kind of warning sign, or vice versa, or, or another warning sign is if, if somebody was is, is usually quite kind of dark and, uh, and lugubrious, that then they, if they become suddenly happy-go-lucky and, and become very friendly, you know, some people have said, some research shows that's a sign that they've, they might be planning to kill themselves and they've come to an acceptance that the pain is going to end. Um, and I think that's an important point to, 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 to note here as well, that, you know, suicide is, is often a result of pain, and so is addictions, and so is substance use. It's a way to control physical pain often in the opioid crisis that people who have had veterans who have had physical injuries or manual workers, and they take opioids to control physical pain or, or mental pain, the pain of a veteran who had camaraderie, who had meaning, had purpose, was, was respected. Uh, in a respected status in society, leaves the military and might not yet have a job, might be living in rented accommodation, lonely, not with his comrades, um, but that causes a lot of pain. Um, and, and that's something that we, we need to talk about more and think about how we how we help people feel that kind of, there's an existential void, that's, that's, that's accompanying pain, uh, there's a difficult transition and we need to mm -hmm. think about that more deeply. Well, and this is where we have to be part of the solution. As you say, <clears throat> silence doesn't solve anything. And so if we within our peer circles see someone with a behavioral change uh, facing a serious transition, 
we not only need to to reach out and see if they need support and help um, if we can help fill that void of purpose um, ask for their help doing something engage them tell them to come out to this gathering of of veterans for coffee at Tim Hortons, this sort of thing. Um, the legions were set up before Veterans Affairs Canada was set up in the late 1920s. Um, sadly, there was too much about the bar and drinking, but <laughs> it was meant to give that camaraderie that they had missed when they took their uniform off. And when I, when I was veterans minister, the young veterans were not joining the legion, but they were going on Facebook pages like send up the count and things like this. And the risk was somebody would reach out on Facebook saying they were struggling and we needed to get someone to them physically. So if you, if you perhaps know someone is, is struggling, engage them in something that might help give them purpose, take them to a legion, to a rotary club meeting, get their help volunteering to clean a park, uh, go to church, uh, or, or if they've, they did that in the past, encourage them. I guess the more we can also help them find that purpose, we can, we can help them get back on their road to wellness. Yeah, and it's, it's everything you said there is the basis for a lot of successful one-on-one -on -one therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy. So some of the underlying principles of, of that therapy are to, to find the key that turns a lock, what, what impassions an individual who, who might be depressed, who might be isolated, might be lonely, and to then work out the kind of road roadmaps, set, set some goals, step-by-step -step basis to, to get you from that position, to be engaged in kind of what impassions you, what makes life worth, worth living, what gives you meaning and purpose. Um, and it's the same with employment. It, some people might say they want to work in a, um, uh, I've worked with men, for example, who, who one man said to me he wants to be a pilot and he was a younger guy and had left high school uh, before getting his diploma and didn't really have the educational qualifications. So I, I said to him, why do you want to be a pilot? And I, he said, well, I love planes. And I said, well, let's let's look on the computer. And I said, well, these are this is the training. This is the requirement to get in. You know, you're not really at this stage yet. But like long term, you could work work to that. But you said you love planes. What about trying to see if there's any jobs at the airport because you live we, you live near the airport and there's a bus there and he said oh yeah that's a good idea so we looked online and we found and he ended up getting a job as a um, I won't say the exact job because of confidentiality uh, but he ended up getting a job at the airport and was very happy he got to hang out near the planes and be part of the, the community at the airport and, and and that's a kind of you know step-by-step -step approach you have to take with with men who are kind of feeling that existential loss feeling that pain Work, work out what impassions and what is the key that turns a lock uh, and try and be there on that journey with them and help them along that way and, and, and be realistic, like I said. Become a sergeant major in your own little platoon for the people <laughs> around you to, to help give them that purpose. Well, listen, Rob, certainly um, our shared passion uh, and purpose for helping discuss these things is what brought us together. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion. You know, the United Kingdom had, they had committee, a parliamentary committee hearings on men's mental health a couple of years ago, right? That's when we first connected. Um, was there any really deep findings coming out of that? Um, and, or was it all the th same things we've touched on here? Yeah, it, um, to be frank, my opinion is that that was a bit of a missed opportunity, but that's not due to the 
um, dereliction of duty amongst the members of parliament on the committee, it was because the committee had a mandate to work for, I think, one or two years and to have expert witnesses and to come out with a final report. And all of a sudden, I can't remember which election it was, but it was, I think Theresa May called, called a snap election because she thought that this would lead to her increasing her majority in parliament, but it actually led to a, a hung parliament and, and she resigned and then Boris Johnson took over. And basically the parliament that that was, that committee was occurring in um, ended and a new parliament began and the new parliament didn't pick up the, uh, the, the slack from the previous committee and didn't reconstitute the committee. So mm -hmm. it was so a missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Darn minority parliaments uh, can sometimes lead to a missed opportunity uh, or a coalition between uh, parties. <laughs> I won't get into that because this is too important. Um, the final thing, we've talked about a few uh, groups, a few programs, a few books, your book, which I'll plug again, Men's Issues and Men's Mental Health, and you write for Psychology Today. We've talked uh, a bit about uh, Bowling Alone, the Putnam book. Um, I know a lot of veterans. In fact, uh, Aaron Bedard, one of my friends, a great veterans advocate. Uh, when I first met him, my first couple of weeks as minister, he gave me a copy of Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search mm -hmm. for Meaning, which mm -hmm. of course is about identifying a new purpose. Um, and, and he came up with this himself really in the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, are there any other books that you'd recommend that that people are passionate about this topic take a look at or any comments on on Frankel or Putnam or anything that people want to equip their little platoon with more education, more training? Yeah, um, I actually wrote a, an article a few years ago called How Reading Books Can Improve Your Mental Health. And if I remember rightly, I, I split it into three different categories. Uh, one is autobiographies, and I think autobiographies can really help somebody who's, who's struggling, an autobiography of someone similar to yourself who's been through the same issues. So if you're a, um, if you're a veteran, there's some great autobiographies, Romeo Delaire's written a good one, Chris Linford, um, uh, Jody, uh, Jody, yeah, Jody Mythic, exactly, mm -hmm. yeah, so I've got a lot of them on my bookshelf here, <laughs> uh, great guys who've been through a lot, but they've come out to make successes of their life. Um, the, the second group of books I talked about were the more kind of academic, which, which my book is, the Robert Putnam. Um, I'm not, I don't want to put myself down here, but, you know, these books might be a bit dry, but they're full of stats, they're full of official information about things that work, things that don't work, you know, the evidence-based practices. Um, and, and another group of books we don't often talk about are fiction, works of fiction that can give you an insight into um, uh, mental health and uh, the uh, struggles that people go through and also the victories and, and how people overcome challenges. Um, if, if you think of like a Scarlet Letter, an old classic book from back in the day, um, how that the, the, that woman in New England was, was stigmatized but led a, a very dignified and, and contributing life to, despite the stigma. Um, there's been a Handmaid's movie. Tale and books like that, I guess. Uh, they're, they're in the news right now for, for other reasons. But <laughs> yeah, I think people can find a bit of meaning in in the written page. Yeah, Miriam Toes is someone I'd like to also plug, who's a great writer from Western Canada, talks about her father and the issues he, he went through. Um, so the, the, there are many resources out there. 
uh, and also lots of great for those who have not necessarily had the time or the inclination to read lots of great YouTube videos um, on men's mental health and, and people talking about overcoming their issues and how they meet the challenges of life. And mm -hmm. So there is a lot of resources out there. Yeah. Well, listen, we, we are educating, training and equipping our, our little platoons because I want all the men that may be listening to this, share this conversation with, with others. Uh, this podcast, Rob's book, some of the reading lists that we've, we've assigned for the summer reading. Um, we all have a role here to reduce stigma, to educate our peer groups and our environments about mental health, recovery, the ability to, to bring the flowers to the hospital and to treat mental uh, injuries or illnesses like physical ones, and then making sure that friends know they're supported and that there are programs, whether it's men's sheds, bushcraft, peer supported charities, and try all of us, I, you know, we all need purpose. Try and find that through, through your family, through your community, through uh, service clubs, through the Legion, through church, through faith, through volunteering. Uh, there's more to, to life than just Facebook. And I think a lot of people right now with the division, with the, the economic uncertainty, need to find that purpose in human interaction. So Rob, you've been a wonderful guide today. It's clear that this passion is one of your primary purposes. Thank you for joining the Blue Skies Political Podcast for such an important and timely topic. Well, thanks again, Aaron. It's been a fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed discussing these issues with you, who, like I said, you championed this in Parliament before it was became kind of trendy and uh, I think people should be grateful for the leadership you've taken in, in terms of mental health. And, and I'm glad that you're keeping the flame alive from the back benches now. As I said, Rob, there's no bad seat in the House of Commons. Uh, I've had many in my years, and I started talking about mental health because I saw the impact. <clears throat> I'll never forget it after Swiss Air Flight 111, when our, our crews and 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 people in Nova Scotia responded to that crash. I saw the exposure to trauma and how it impacted some of my friends and, and, and the community. And the more we talk about it, the more we can solve it. As you said, silence has never been shown to solve uh, important problems. And so this discussion today has been great. So, so thanks again. Thanks again, Aaron. Thanks so much. Take care. And thank you. This has been a very, um, important Blue Skies political podcast and a difficult one at times. But talking about difficult subjects is some of the ways we can make them less difficult. And every life, if we can prevent one of those 50 Canadian men who may contemplate or have suicide ideation this week, we can, we can have an impact and no gesture is too small. So this has been a very, very important topic, men's mental health. Please check out Rob's column in Psychology Today, Men's Issues and Men's Mental Health. If you have any comments, send them to me through direct message, through email, rate and like this podcast on whatever platform you use, and particularly men, particularly veterans. Share this podcast, reach out, do a buddy check, send up the count, make sure the folks in your network are doing well, and if they're struggling, get them the support they need and help give them purpose. It will also give you purpose. 
I'm Aaron O'Toole. This has been a very important episode of the Blue Skies Political Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.